Hello, I'm Cormac. You're listening to Queerly Beloved, supported by Amazon Music. In this series, I invite DJs and musicians, friends and allies from the LGBTQ plus community to talk about music, queerness and anything else that shapes their unique story. It is my hope that in sharing our individual experiences, we can learn and grow and focus on our similarities rather than our differences. You can find all of the music mentioned in today's episode and each episode at the link in the episode description. In this episode, I'm talking with Fat Tony. Fat Tony is first and foremost a character and also a London DJ institution. His career spans 40 years. I first started listening to Tony back in the 90s. He was a resident at Trade at Turnmills, and he was really rather infamous then. And he's kind of famous now. He's just written a Sunday Times best-selling book, I Don't Take Requests. It's his life story and also talks about his journey through addiction, which very nearly killed him. Tony was my first NA recovery sponsor. And we do talk in this episode about the steps. We are not talking about the band. We're talking about the 12 steps. Here's me in conversation with DJ Fat Tony. Tony, I want to start with you. Just you can introduce yourself and tell me who you are and uh, where you're from, for example. Okay, so I'm DJ Fat Tony. I'm from London. From London. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually from all over the place, but I I currently reside in London. I was born in London. London is my home. But these days I fit quite comfortably anywhere in the world, really. I also think like when I when I see you online, it's very apparent. And I know you also a little bit personally. So I also see that you're very much an Irish man as well. You have a great sense of humour. Well, I'm actually Irish, Scottish and Italian descendant, all three. So, you know, my sense of humour, I find the, I find the light in all dark situations. And you know what? Everything that I kind of find funny and I laugh at is because I've been through it myself. So if you can't like you know, and as you say, if you can't laugh at yourself, then you're you're just wasting people's time. You know, you're wasting your own time. I mean, I find humour in everything. Yeah. That's important to I me. Mean, you have to. I mean, that's what gets you through, isn't it? Yeah. So, and also, it's that old fact of as soon as you find the fact that you can laugh at yourself or laugh at a situation, it takes the power out of it. You've overcome it. So through laughter, I overcome so many mental things that go on in my head. I will wake up at 3 a.m. and by 6 a.m. I want to kill myself because I lie there and I will manifest this drama in my head which will catastrophize the world. And then by 6 a.m. I have to laugh at it and think, oh, my God, what are you going on about? Because that's how it works. I tell people in meetings that I wake up with Tragic FM playing. I have to kind of get my shit together and, like, change the station, you know, because I... I wake up. I wake up the same. I used to be like that. I, I mean, the three AM thing is a different thing entirely, because I I I can catastrophize things. But when normally when I wake up first thing in the morning, I'm really blessed and really happy to be awake. I'm a morning person. I'm not a night person. In that said, okay. So I'm a nightmare to have around in the morning. I'm one of those people that you like. Shut the fuck <laughs> up. And my boyfriend Stabby is so not a morning person. Him, Rini, and Raph, the two dogs, all will sleep through to like 11 or 12. And I'm like, oh, come on. It's like they, I, I call them the lazy gang, all three of them, because they just sleep in there. And I'm like, I'm up at 6 a.m. Like, making loads of noise. It's one of those things you would never have guessed, like until you get sober and in recovery that, you know, you're a morning person. Like I would never have said that about me either. Like, no, you know, that I like getting up early. I, I do. Know. You know why? Because I, I think every day is a blessing and I want to make the most of that day. Mm. As soon as I wake up, I have to get up. I, otherwise I can sit on my phone on social media for an hour and a half to two hours. That's two hours wasted of yeah. my day looking at mundane mm. rubbish. So I, I, so now I try not to do that. I try to get out of bed and get on with it. So whereabouts in London did you grow up? Were you a South London kid? Uh, yeah, I grew up in uh, Battersea. I was born in Pimlico. I was born on four streets away from here. Um, wow. Yeah, literally. When I moved back to Pimlico... You full circle. No, but I, I literally am like a homing pigeon. 
I walk to get a coffee in the mornings and I walk past my grandmother's house, which is at the end of the street, which I can remember visiting at a really young age. And I, and I always say, I always say good morning to her. Oh. Because it's just, there's something really nice about looking at that flat where my dad grew up. Were you the youngest in your family or how many brothers and sisters? I have two brothers. I have one elder, one younger. Yeah, I'm the middle son. And was there music in your house when you were growing up? Always. Always. So my older brother thought he was going to be a DJ. My dad was one of these dads that always had the best stereos, had to have the newest equipment, had to have the newest satellite dish, had to have everything. And my dad would buy Marantz, I swear by Marantz, which were these, like, uh, that made amps and stuff like that. So my dad was, like, really into his music. So on a Sunday, we would wake up and there'd be music playing in the house all day. And then all week long, my brother would be playing his music. And then my little brother would be playing his music uh, on speakers outside of the window on the roof. So there was always music in our house. So, you know... Uh, but it's always been that way. Like my great grandmother was a classic pianist, and my my grandmother also taught piano. So music's always been with with us in our family. Yeah, we had that too. My mom and dad were kind of into traditional Irish music, but then my brothers were into like you know um, everything from the Smiths to the Cure and Depeche Mode and lots of yeah. So there was always music and music in our house. You could say our house was a little bit like emotionally stunted, would be a polite way to say it. But everybody came together about music. So music was this kind of like very celebratory thing that everyone connected on. It was a a bit magic in our house. Well, you know, it's like you can't have a party without music, right? Mm. And and it's as simple as that. You know, if you go get your hair cut in in a barbershop and there's no music playing, it suddenly becomes a library, you know, the music changes everything. And I think growing up in the dynamics of a household with music, it, will, it always takes the pressure off of the fact that you don't like where you're living or you don't like your, your brothers or you don't like certain things that are going on in the house. Music will change that because it's something that we can all relate to. And, yeah. you know, although, you know, the, the, my dad would like play everything from, Elvis, Jim Reeves, Roy Orbison, all of that stuff. But then he also was playing all modern stuff as well. You know, he got into, he's like, and my elder brother was always into lovers rock and soul music, which is where my sort of like love for for early dance music came from. Mm. Vocals, meaningful songs. There's a soulfulness in your sets always, yeah. It's that connection with those words and words to songs you know, we, we make them relate to us. And like, yeah. you know, they're not even the right song words. That's the beauty of this. Is, you know, when you listen to a track, you know, you take in what part you want to take into. And you take it and you change those words to, you know, it's the old, like, you know, freed from desire, trombolese moment. Because we all, like, think, oh, yes, yeah, trombolese, and it's not. It's not from belief. But, you know, we, we, we make up words yeah. so that it appeals to us because that's what we sing. And I think when that's what happens when you listen to music. When you start to feel music, it's a whole different ballgame. When you feel a track and it has the power to emotionally take you to the edge after three bars. There's certain music, like songs that will come on and three bars in, I'm like, my hair's just standing on end. I'm an emotional wreck because I I know what follows those three bars. And that's feeling. Absolutely. And then, you know, all of that is like something that you don't see. It's something you feel, which is like just incredible, isn't it? And it is. And I think that's why, you know, when I got clean and I, I reconnected with music uh, uh, and I reconnected with the real reason why I started going out in the first place, because I didn't go out because I knew there would be drugs there or that it was alcohol. I went out to, to, the first time I ever went out was the most exciting thing because it was all about the music and it was all about the lights and it was all about that whole atmosphere, which drew me in. And the moment I went into that club was the minute that I decided this is my life. I never, ever want it to stop. I never want to leave the disco. And I kind of like, it, it's been my life. I've never left the fucking disco. Do you get what I mean? <laughs> 47 years later, I'm still in the fucking disco, you know. God, I had such a similar experience. And I was very young, like maybe 
even 10 or 11 or my mum and dad were having like a wedding anniversary party and there was a disco downstairs in the hotel where they were having their anniversary and somehow I got into the disco for the last track of the night and uh, I remember it was Yaz, The Only Way Is Up. You make me feel really old now, Cormac. <laughs> but, you know, I remember just witnessing it and being like, I don't exactly know what's going on here, but I know that this is in my future. Like having that feeling of um, like being shown something really special, something that was going to be very special for you. Yeah, I mean, I walked into heaven and I was 15. And like, you know, the minute I walked in there, I was hit with that energy. It, was, it, it wasn't the music that knocked me off my feet. It was the energy of all of those men dancing. And that, you know, that energy was just, it, over, it overcome me. And that was what I connected to. I connected with that, whoa, this is the most amazing feeling I'd ever felt. Not only because it was all men or whatever else. I think there was, it was a mixture of things. But really the energy that came off that dance floor was what really drew me in. I just was like, wow. And then suddenly to see these like lightning bolts going across the ceiling with neon and the, the mirror balls with the, the neon planets that were wrapped around them that they used to have at heaven uh-huh. and all of that stuff that used to come down from the ceiling and go back up. It was just like, it was mind blowing. You know, oh, it really was. It was just, and I just thought that's it. This is where I belong. Absolutely. I love it. And so you were the middle kid. They say very often that the middle kid is fighting a bit harder to get noticed. Would you say that was the case? Oh, especially in my house, because my elder brother was always (laughs) in trouble with the police. And my younger brother was God's gift. He was the golden child. So I was the middle son. So for me, I always had to create scenarios to get the attention because my brother got all the attention because the police were always at the house or he was always in court or whatever. So to me, I felt that I was neglected. So from a really young age, like the age of three, I talk about it in my book, the fact that I had Munchausen's by proxy. I basically, not by proxy, but by like, but you know, I, I discovered at a really young age, I had my, I had a collapsed lung when I was three. I went into hospital. And as my mum always says, that was the moment I changed. That was the moment everything changed for Tony. The minute I went into hospital, because suddenly I was getting attention. I was getting people who were visiting me. They were showing me unconditional love. They, they, it was all about me. So what happened from there was I learned, oh, my God, the, if I'm ill, I'll get attention. So from that moment on, I'd become the most accident-prone child there ever, that ever lived. And uh, there were moments where... I would be ill all the time, and I wasn't really ill, but I, in my head, I thought I was. And for you know, around the age of thirteen, fourteen, I was on crutches for a year and a half, uh, pretending that I had something wrong with me. I had operations on my leg that I never needed. You know, I, it, was, it really is. You know, I, you know. Now I channel that commitment into other areas, but you know, at that point in time, it was like about attention. It was about getting that attention. And the sad thing is when you seek that kind of attention, other people see that as a weakness and they prey on it. That's life. Were you a happy kid, though? Would you say, like, you were happy? 100%, yeah. Yeah. Until about the age of 10, my life was amazing. I was having so much fun. Yeah. You know, because I was getting the attention I wanted. I was a gay son. I was running around the estate, the council estate in drag. I was doing all of those things that any healthy little gay child that, is not being told he can't do what he does. Ah, so they were supportive. 100%. My mum always supported me. Oh, amazing. My mum came to, uh, we did a stage show, an evening with the other week at uh, the Duke of York's Theatre, and my mum was on stage talking about how when I was free, the doctor diagnosed me as gay <laughs> in a hospital. And I was like, why did the doctor tell you I was gay? She went, well, you were sitting on a giraffe in the waiting room. My mum was like, you telling everyone, get off my giraffe, move now, go away. And, and my mum said, I used to sit on buses saying, well, I don't belong on here, let's get a taxi. Oh, and I love that. All of that stuff. <laughs> and so my do- the doctor said to my mum, you do know he's gay, right? Wow. So I was like diagnosed wow. as gay. But, you know, uh, I, I kind of, you know, my mum and, and dad allowed me to be who I wanted to be. My dad kind of got stricter as I got older. 
and become more. When I used to leave the house in drag, my dad didn't like it because my dad feared I was going to be beaten up. My dad feared for my security around that stuff because I was laying myself so open. And, yeah. and you know, yeah. the 80s weren't exactly a loving time for, my, for, my, for our community uh, growing up on an estate in Bansy, but I didn't really give a fuck about that. And my dad knew that. And so my, my dad's worry was something totally different. My dad worried about the way other people would treat me. So therefore he treated me in a way that kind of toughened me up. So but I misread it. Yeah. So, but later on in my addiction, it, it suited me very well to think that he was homophobic when he wasn't. But, you know, through my using, when you become a victim within your using, and you want the world to feel sorry for you, and to, oh, poor Tony, his dad hated him, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. We use those things as excuses to be for our, for our uh, behaviours. And um, so I, for, for many years, I used to think that my dad really didn't like me because I was gay. My dad never had a problem with me yeah. being gay. I had the problem. Is there a record that you could think of? I'm sure there's plenty, but is there a record you could think of from those early days that reminds you of those times? Street Life by the Crusaders. That's a good choice. 100%. It was the, the first 12-inch I ever bought, and I mean, I saved up and went down to Clapham Junction to the record shop on the hill, and it was in the window, and it was a blue 12-inch single with a car on it. And I was so obsessed by that track because uh -huh. the words meant everything to me. You know, you play the street life. It's the only life I know. Every night you play, you dance with that. You know, it was just the words just connected with me. And it was just like, it was such an, uh, the first track that I ever really emotionally got into. Mm. It was like, you know, I had a real love affair with that track. I mean, the other one was when I was really young. I got my mum and dad to buy me Crocodile Rock by Elton John. Uh -huh. And I remember crying all the time because my mum used to put it in the cupboard so I couldn't play it. Because I used to play it over and over and over again, just to annoy, it just annoyed the fuck out of them. So my mom, I used to have to ask my mum, "Mum, can I have my record?" And she, it, it would be in the in the, one of the top cupboards in the kitchen. That's so crazy because those 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 two records are kind of prophetic for you in a way, you know, like yeah. the street life thing, you know, like being the king of nightlife and. Uh, all of that to come, and then, of course, your friends with Elton. I mean, that's just insane, like those two choices. Yeah, I mean, who would have thought it? I've told Elton that story many times as well. But, you know, the thing about it is it's just like back then as a kid, just to latch on to Crocodile Rock and be so obsessed by it. Yeah. I, I You know, there's never been any point in my life where we've never ever doubted the fact that I've got an obsessive, an obsessive personality. You know, I would be obsessed by stuff, and I would play it over and over and over again. And uh, it's always been that way, really. When we look back at kind of the formative nature of the 80s and all that it contributed to music and where we are now and how much of that came from the 80s, you know, but growing up queer at that time was notoriously not easy. Even in a metropolitan city like London, things were tough. So I lived 10 minutes on a bus from King's Road, Chelsea, which is where I, I decided to move to. Like, I got kicked out of school at 14. I suddenly got a, a job working in the King's Road. And at that point in time, it really was the social media of the world. People would walk up and down it to get photographed. It had just come from New Romantics. Uh, so everyone was on that street. So being gay on that street was okay, you know. Okay. It kind of really was all right. But beyond that street, it wasn't, you know. It, it kind of went to different levels. And, of course, you know, the 80s were, as I say, the first time I ever went to a club was in the 80s. And, you know, it was heaven and the music and everything that was that went along with those times because it wasn't only about new romantic music and electronic music. We suddenly were moving into this high-energy area within the gay clubs. Yeah. And high-energy, which was the most amazing feeling ever to go into a club oh, where everybody was on ether fan dancing. Because fan dancing went with high energy music. I kind of feel like high energy is, you know, this moment where disco became more synthetic. Yeah. And like kind of more pumped up. And, and there's, yeah, that's really fucking exciting sound. You know, I remember going to Heaven 
And they, there was this one track that they would play every Saturday and it was by Nancy Nova and it was The Force. It's The Force. It's just yeah. mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. And it was one of those tracks that I never really talk about because it's my track. Uh-huh. It's my magic uh-huh. moment. It was. It really was a, a music that defined my life at that point in time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just so genius. I used to see Jeffrey Hinton there. And he had white dreadlocks at that point in time, like made out of wool. Uh-huh. And he'd be in there on a Saturday and everyone would be in there. And I'd, Rupert was there, Everett's where I used to meet Rupert. And everyone, and we'd all be at heaven on a Saturday night. It's where I first met Freddie Mercury and those guys, which has been, you know, become a, a, a tag. I had the tagline for my yeah. fucking life, which I hate, because <laughs> uh, it was said in the conversation. You know, I met all of those people there. And, and it really was that music that drew us there. And, you know, high energy was the early basis of, of house music because it was that natural shift. Suddenly, Absolutely. you know, it all suddenly blended into one. So we had disco, which went into high energy, which then suddenly went into house music. You kind of very cleverly answered my question there because I was going to ask you about, like, you know, like a queer record from those times. But that Nancy Nova track that you mentioned, I didn't know it. And uh, when I saw your answers and I looked it up, I was like, how the fuck do I not know this record? It's amazing. It's a genius record. It's so good. I, I could I could play that now. In fact, I pro- will probably play that this, this weekend. So thanks for that. It's great. Oh, you know for well it's going to be on there. I'll, I'll call Max New Playlist. <laughs> as long as you credit me, I'll be happy. I will definitely, definitely credit you. Because these are the tracks, you know, we, we, we're, they're doing a documentary version of my book for, for TV. And, I had to do uh, a cultural playlist that goes with the series. And instead of choosing all of, like, you know, the obvious tracks, I didn't want to do that. Uh, you know, I, I've been around a long time and, and I know a lot of different music and I don't need to make it obvious. I want to put the special ones in there. I think the tracks that should be in there for the, to, for the 80s and that era are the Nancy Nova tracks, are the Boys Town Gang cruising the streets. Mm, and, I love that. You know, all of those incredible that. tracks that really, really paved our lives. They really were. Eartha Kitt. Yeah. You know, I mean, insane. I remember seeing Eartha Kitt, seeing at Heaven, you know, doing on a Saturday night, doing a performance of I'm Your Man. or No, that, what was it called? Waiting for My Man. or Yeah, Waiting uh, for My Man, yeah. yeah. She was laying on the stage long with her fans singing, where is my baby? I want it now. Yes. <laughs> and also Divine played at Heaven, didn't he? Divine played at Heaven so many times. So I first met Divine at Heaven. Uh-huh. And Divine used to play at Heaven. Probably about, I saw Divine at Heaven five times. You can't change those feelings. Do you know what I mean? They, they were magical moments. You, know, you would go and you would have these incredible stars playing at Heaven on a Saturday night and it was men only. But it's also one of those times, Tony, I mean, you mentioned like soulfulness, like high energy also still had that, you know, in terms of vocals. But it's also a time when you look at the influence of that club music and how it then filtered into the charts and stuff. Yeah. It was again a time when queer music was at the height. You know, it was at the top of the mountain and it was trickling down. Babe, everyone came to everyone came to the gays for direction. Yeah. We really were. Everyone wanted to go to gay clubs. Everyone wanted to be around that kind of energy because they that's where it all started. Yes. And it wasn't until like the nineties where straight people suddenly thought, okay, Everyone's coming, the gays could come to our clubs. You know, we, we created this, we created that. Acid House really was that turning point where straight people suddenly thought they created this whole new feeling, this whole new, like, way of life. And and they, they kind of take, tried to take the credit for it. But, you know, yeah. it was always about the gay dance floors. It was always what was being played on the gay scene. And at that point in time, most gay people looked the same. They had the, yes. the, the, the 501s, the check shirts, the moustaches, the clone. the clone. And the clone really was such an incredible tribe. Mm. Such an incredible tribe. Because at that point in time, we had red punk, we had skinheads, right? We had mods and we had clones. Clones are the ones that no one talks about. If you were to go back to the history, people would talk about skinheads, they would talk about mods, and they would talk about new romantics. They don't talk about clones because... It was always an underground movement. 
But there were so many fucking thousands of people in London alone that were closed. We had own our own areas. Ells Court was a clone area. Everybody looked. The colon. Everyone had color-coded hankies that went with being a clone. Uh-huh. There were so many amazing things because it was a tribe and that you, everyone as a gay man wants to belong to that tribe. So the minute you could grow a moustache, you had a moustache. You could be a clone right now. You look very clonish. I mean, you can kind of see it creeping back into aesthetics in clubs now. You can see it. I mean, the biggest clone that took it out of that and put it on stage was Freddie. Freddie looked super clone, no? Yeah, he was a clone. Yeah, of course he was. You know, and, and that was the whole ethos behind the way he looked, everything he did, down to the leather straps on his arms. That was it. But no one really related it to the clone because they were too busy that, talking about skinheads and everything else that went on. You know, because Freddie never openly came out as gay, they didn't link the two until much later on. And then I guess also because, you know, without social media and without that kind of cross-pollination of info, that was still, as you say, an underground thing. So taking it and putting it on stage, people maybe didn't make so much of the connection. Of course they didn't, you know, and also that, you know, the clones weren't fighting outside football matches. Yeah. You know, the clones weren't fighting on Brighton Beach every bank holiday, like the mods were. They weren't appearing in the papers. Because of that reason, do you know what I'm saying to you? It wasn't until much later that the clone become apparent when AIDS hit. As soon yeah. as AIDS hit, that killed the clone. Suddenly, to have a moustache and a check shirt and keys hanging off your side and hankies, put a target on your back, and suddenly you were an AIDS victim, suddenly you were an AIDS carrier, suddenly you were a part of that community that were spreading the virus, yes. that whole desire to suddenly fit into a community was shattered because no one knew how to cope with what was going on. And especially with the media and the pitchfork and torches that were being lit to drive us out of our community and to put the blame on us for AIDS, it changed everything. Music changed, everything changed. Did the clubs get quieter then or did people still try and come together to find some kind of strength? You know, what happened was they suddenly become this revolution within the clubs. People started to dress up more. People started to go out more and started to be, become themselves. But also what happened was you're talking about, you know, suddenly heaven on a Saturday night, the men only thing changed. Everything started to change gradually. Within the gay community, you could sleep with whoever you wanted to. You could be who you wanted to be. Suddenly that no longer existed and that was taken from us. Mm. And we suddenly were being shunned and and finger pointing. And then suddenly I'll come around uh, 1980, 1990, 91, when it really started to hit London hard. Between 91 and 95 was the worst five years for London because everyone started dying. Yeah. I think in 93, 94 was the worst kind of years for me because that's when I lost everyone around me. I lost, I'd say, 80% of my peer group. My boyfriend passed in 95. Was that Tom? Yeah, that was Tom Hammond, yeah. He passed in 95. I remember you talking about him. You know, the effect that I had on my life. My life spiralled out of control after that because it was already there. It was already spiralling. But, you know, something of that magnitude to come along and to annihilate me. And I went into a complete state of denial. I went into this complete... I remember going to visit Tom in, his, in the hospice and I'd just got my record deal. I'd just bought my house. Career-wise, it was a magical time. I'd signed to Big Life Records. I, I had this massive deal. And I, I remember giving Tom the CD in the hospital. You know, three months later, he, he'd passed away and it wasn't a happy time, which it should have been. And also, you know, just the shame around it and the way it was being portrayed in the media. I mean, losing your friends like that, that's something that most people face in old age, you know, and and to have that happen at such an early time in life and then just have no support around it. It's like, well, fuck. he came home in 1990 and said to me, oh, I've got something to tell you. And I was like, what? He said, I've, I've been diagnosed. You need to go and get checked. And I was like, oh, okay. I just shrugged it off because I, I was in denial around it. And Oh, that year we split up and then I moved three doors along <laughs> to Bar Italia. And 
watched him die over the course of three years. I watched him deteriorate. And, you know, my life just completely spiraled out of all control at that point in time. It's so heartbreaking. It makes me think, you know, like in your t- 20s, you're kind of paying the the credit card bill for your teens. And in your 30s, you're kind of paying the credit card bill for what happened in your 20s. You know, at some point we have to face the music and events like that. When you start to unravel, everything starts to come up and needs addressing. You know, it's like that's when um, the cracks start to show. <laughs> I like um, literally was like the biggest fucking slut at that time. You know, my whole life was all, my sex addiction overtook my drug addiction mm. at that point in time. And I just thought, I'm going to have the best time because you really thought that at that moment in time you were on borrowed time. And, you know, we had such a amazing spaces in London at that point in time. We had Bloomsbury Square. We had Russell Square. We had all these amazing... <laughs> yeah, of course. And, you know, you'd go out clubbing and you'd walk along to Bloomsbury Square or Russell Square or Clapham Common or any of those places. And the night would continue. And, of course, you know, it was always going to end in tears. It's interesting, you know, like how all of that kind of ties in with the music of the time as well. And, you know, to think about divine, to think about high energy, to think about heaven at those times... You can't separate it from the AIDS crisis. No, you can't, and you shouldn't. And I think it's that... It's like a soundtrack of it. It really is. You know, shoot your shot. Yeah. Just incredible. Take it like a man. <laughs> Take it like a man. Was just, yeah. It was so good. We want to talk to you kind of about the birth of house music in London and if there's a record from that time that kind of makes you think of that time or that sums up that time for you. Yeah, Daryl Pandy, Love Can't Turn Around, was really that crossover track uh-huh. that suddenly changed how we saw house music. Another soulful vocal. This is how it started. Uh-huh. I was broken hearted. I want you. I want you, baby. It's amazing. Just the best. It was just like, but to see Daryl perform that was just breathtaking because it was just like this force, this incredible tsunami of a man singing this new kind of high energy mm. and it was it, what it did was it was that first turning point for house music in that sense of where it crossed over into into the gay clubs and suddenly it was like wow this is a new form of high energy i was very fortunate at that point in time to be djing and and being a part of all of that you know i did a club on a, a monday night called jungle kevin mullins and uh, Steve Swindle started running it. And I got a job there with an amazing DJ called Colin Favor. Colin hated me because I wasn't your kind of DJ. I came and I played music. Colin was a DJ that, you know, used to count beats and it was all about his life and blah, 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 blah. And he, made it. He, was, he was like one of those DMC guys. So they all, it was all about, you know, like this is my profession technique oh fuck off yeah i used to turn up and i used to play the music and people loved me because of what i was doing and how i did it and that's how i started because you know there was another great dj from dmc as well called ian Tuhurst. Uh-huh. and ian was the dj at the playground which was rusty egan and steve strange night at the lyceum and every week i would say the music shit because <laughs> i worked on the door and i'd say people are leaving and Rusty would be like, why are they leaving us? Because everyone's saying the music shit. And that's how I started DJing. So Rusty was like, why are they saying it shit? I said, oh, anyone can do it. He said, if you can do it, you do it. So the next week I turned up with four records, which was Pink Cadillac by Natalie Cole. Uh, uh, there was Divine, uh, ABC, 12-inch. And, you know, and, and Who's Zooming Who by Aretha Franklin. That was it. Those four track records changed my life forever. All of them have a soul feeling. I mean, ABC were like white boy soul. Totally. totally. So I, I turned up with those records. And, and of course, Ian got the sack because I took over. You know, the old cuckoo in the nest as such. And that was it. And within two months, I had a residency in New York. It really makes me think about, you know, something I learned, you know, through my addiction and through depression also, was that how you feel when you DJ is really fucking important. It's almost as important as what you play because people 
you transmute something and transmit something and people feel it. And it makes me think of him, you know, being super serious and focused on technique and you really enjoying yourself and people connecting with it. <laughs> because I used to play the same record three or four times a night. They were played at the moment they were meant to be played. Mm. They weren't a part of a set. Colin would do sets. All of those DJs would do sets. They would pre, pre-work out their set before they even went out of the house. I would just turn up and I would read that crowd. And that's what I've always done. And I read a crowd. I've never, ever sat and pre-planned anything. Yeah. I used to take two big rocker boxes of vinyl. And what I played, I played. Whereas that lot all used to like be like, oh, this is all BPM matching the whole set and yeah. blah, blah, blah. I was all over the shop. But that's why it works, because people loved it. It was all about the moment. Yeah, I think you can learn technique, but you can't learn that. You have to be a raver first or someone that's been on the dance floor first, and you have to feel music. And then you have that intuitiveness. Yeah. How long after your first set were you at Trade then? Because Trade for me is where I got to know Fat Tony. I started doing the WAG. I started running the WAG on Saturday nights, which was called Fatitude at the WAG and Attitude at the WAG and Fat, fat Saturdays at the WAG. Uh, then I moved from there and I did the limelight. Then Acid House came along, and, uh, which changed everything. And I started doing all the big fields and everything, you know, DJing at nearly every rave. If you look at old rave flyers, I'm on every one of them, you know, um, and, and did all of those for years. And then... You know, from the WAG, we used to go to trade, and it was really hard house at that point in time. And then one weekend, Lawrence was like, okay, they're starting this new room called Trade Light with the Sharp Boys. And it didn't really take off straight away, Trade Light. Uh, and then I started playing at Trade Light. And, of course, like the cuckoo, took over, got rid of the Sharp Boys <laughs> rather quickly. Around 1990, it kind of like came into itself. I mean, I was visiting London then in 96, I moved there in 97, but I had gone there and I was more into like the hard house sound in the main room. And I had this friend, Dario, who I'm still very good friends with. I don't know if you know Dario, but Dario used to go to trade like in full Marilyn Monroe drag, like she'd just yeah. got out of the shower. So she would have like a bathrobe and the hair and the towel and earrings, like one of those trade characters. Yeah. And I just love Dario and Dario be like, you have to come into the light lounge, come into the light lounge. You know, there was a, a franticness to trade. And a lot of that was because of the franticness in your booth, quite frankly. It was <laughs> like, you know, we talk about how you feel in the booth, but there was a chaos going on in there that, that oh, it was, yeah. Was infe- it was infectious. People, I mean, I get a rush talking about it, but there was just a wildness. I don't know if the wildness was fueling your wildness or you were fueling its wildness, but there was a wildness. See, I was battling what was going on in the other room. Mm. As I said in this Tony DeBit documentary before, there wasn't room for two Tonys in my eyes. You had Tony DeBit, which everyone loved, and then there was, to- there was me. And I just thought, right, okay, we need to turn this around. It's not about the hard, the hard house anymore. We need to get them all in it. And we built Trade Light and it turned into this phenomenon of where you could go and you could hear those incredible soulful songs. But also, you know, it had this edge about it that we weren't afraid to play your song by Elton John in the middle of the night in its entirety. All of those magical moments I wasn't scared of doing because I had no inhibition. I didn't care about what anyone yeah. thought. I was there, and the more drugs I took, the more I went on that tangent and took people on this different level. And, you know, I wanted all of you guys to be as high as I was Mm. and as insane Mm. as I was. You know, I used to turn the music up, as you know, no K, no play, and I'd turn the music up and and stand in the DJ box until people brought me cocaine, and then I'd put the music back on. Looking back on that Your Song moment, I don't know if that happened more than once, but when you did that, I think that taught me as a DJ to take risks mm. because there was something so crazy about that. But everybody just went like you stopped the music and you played Elton John. And it was like it was insane because I'd listened to it that day and I was thinking, oh, I'm going to play this tonight. And you said, "Everyone's like your <laughs> and I was like, I don't care. I remember vaguely someone finishing their set and you taking their record and maybe kind of throwing it, yeah, throwing <laughs> it into the ground all the time. That anyone knew I was coming on hated to play before me because they knew that I would take the needle off their record 
put my record on and put the needle on and just carry on. And just like, thanks, bye, get out. That was like, if he was coming, you know, because there would be all these rumours circulating, like, is Fat Tony coming? Fat Tony's in hospital. Fat Tony's dead. Yeah. That was a rumour at one point. Yeah, of course. And then you would show up like Lazarus. I remember coming out of there, out of trade one morning and the cab driver saying to me, oh my God, I heard you were dead. And I was like, no, I'm very much alive. You can't design those moments that's what zeitgeist is isn't it like yeah you can't you can say okay i want to have a successful club but you can't design like that all, all those factors that come in and make london the place to be in that moment no you can't because it's magic and could you try to premeditate that it would never work how do you think the industry from then has changed to now because you know when we talk about like frisbee and records and stuff i had a dj um from that era tell me, you know, there was a lot of viciousness between DJs, a lot of competition. And I feel now, especially on the gay scene or the queer scene, there's a lot of support. I mean, I think I think we kind of support our own these days. I, I think there's, yeah, we do support our own. And I mean, for me, I, I think the most important thing that I can possibly do is support up and coming DJs by giving them work. That I'm not scared. You see, the thing was back then, people were scared that someone was going to take their place. Yeah. So that's where the viciousness came in. I mean, I had this running like drama with the Sharp Boys for many years. I used to piss in their record box. I used to, oh, you name it, I did it. Because I lived in a, a place of fear that someone was going to be better than I was or somebody take my role as, you know, the, the, the most fucked up person on the planet. Uh, so that there was a lot of that then. But today I think that I know no one's going to come and take my job. I know no one's going to replace me because I am who I am and I do what I do. I think that the moment that we caught that crosses over and you, and you start to love what you do as a person, yeah. as a DJ, you start to believe in yourself. You then suddenly, that belief moves on to shifts to other people. You start believing in them. And I think that I'm very blessed I, that, you know, the job that I do in Ibiza every other weekend or wherever I am in the world it's nothing but love from other DJs. Don't get me wrong. You still get dirty looks from resident DJs in, in, in clubs in Palmer or in Mykonos because they're the ones that are feared up that you're going to take their job. Or they, they're like, oh, he's not as good as you. Why are they paying him that kind of money when he's not? He's, he's, he's mixing yeah. slightly off. You know, you, you get that kind of dynamic. But you get from the real ones that believe in themselves and know their worth, you don't get that energy. That energy doesn't exist. It's beautifully put. I had a lovely conversation with Honey. I don't think she would mind me saying about, you know, and it, and it really corresponds to this chat, you know, this early love of music and then this love of community, this love of clubs and all that it gives us as queer people. And then, you know, the love that it gives you in times of crisis. You know, the job is, in a way, a job of love. It really is. It, that all explodes when you finally love yourself. You know, when you're in those moments, you've been to those moments. It was like, you know, say Larry, for instance. Mm. You know, I when I used to go to Garage and we'd go, me, George and all that, and we went, you know, we went there one night with Dinah Ross and we're in the DJ box with Larry and Dinah Ross. Insane. All those insane things. And then when Larry moved to London and Larry got ill, he had very few friends that really wanted to look after him. He was living with his sisters and it was a really magical time in the sense that there really was a lot of love going on in the world for other DJs and other people. You know, I remember bringing Frankie to London, Frankie Knuckles, I, the first time he ever came to London was with me and DJed with me. And it was just like, you know, I've had that conversation with Harry before and, you know, there's so much magic happening because it comes from a place of love and not a place of fear. And I yeah. think that that still continues today because we can look up to DJs, right? We can look up to people and put them on these pedestals. And when we meet them and they, they turn out to be the biggest arsehole in the fucking world, that shatters our beliefs. And, and we kind of, then suddenly it becomes trauma. And then we pass that trauma on to the next big DJ because we think they're going to treat us the same way. Yeah. And it's, all, it's not like that. And as soon as you meet someone that shatters that image and you think, oh my God, what a lovely person. Yes. Because they're at ease with themselves. Someone like Honey, right? Honey doesn't need to impress you because Honey is Honey, right? Yeah. You're in, what you expect of Honey is your your business, right? Yes. What Honey gives you is her business. Absolutely. And that's where people, because today when people meet me, they want to take pictures with me. They want to, 
I'm very blessed, Cormac. I'm, I get stopped 30, 40 times at the airport. You know, it's insane. And people want to take photos. Whereas before, I would run away from that. But now I'm so blessed that someone wants to stop me and tell me they love me or tell me they're at my book. Yeah. They love what I do. And they want to take a picture with me. That is a fucking blessing. Talking about how things maybe have changed in the scene and people supporting each other. And, yeah. I mean, with all that's going on in the world now and, you know, Instagram and social media, they create these little micro aggressive arguments and people pointing fingers. And I'm of the opinion, you know, if you're under the LGBTQ bracket and you're pointing the finger at someone else in that bracket, you're part of the problem. Like there's fucking bigger shit to fry and we need to come together to do that. We need to, it's very recovery. We need to focus on the similarities and not the differences. But the thing is, people aren't in recovery. And, and you know, the one, the worst ones really do, would, could benefit from being in recovery and having a set of 12 steps just to change their outlook on how they see other people and how they perceive the fact that they think it's their business what other people do. You know, within our community right now, we're probably at an all-time low. We really are because there's so many areas of our community that are at each other's throats. And what that does is shows the world that we're weak, right? Absolutely. When you're, there's a unity between our community. We're a strong force. As soon as one part of that, community fights another part of that community suddenly there's a big fucking crack in Absolutely. it which allows hate through and allows fear to seep through we talked a lot about the joy of music tony and you know you brought a lot of joy to people with your music it blows my mind to think those times in trade of all the magic that you're creating and yet you're in the booth full of fear that you're not enough. I mean, it makes sense to me, but it's just mind-blowing because I've, I've done that for myself, you know, but hearing it from the outside, it's just like, you've obviously had tough times, very tough times. Like music, I guess, plays an important part in supporting you through that. You know, when you went to rehab, for example, were you listening to music? There's one track that changed my life. Yeah, again, it goes back to that vocal thing again. And it was the Soldiers of Twilight, believe. And the words to it, you know, I ended my book with actually saying in it, when we start to believe we're halfway there. Yeah. And it really, look, my ears went straight up on end as soon as I said that. Because the words to that song just changed everything for me. It gave me hope. As soon as you get hope, suddenly belief comes into play. Mm. And whenever I'm at a low point or I'm in a happy point, or I, I have these moments and I will just play it. And it's just... It has the most magical feeling for me because it really was that caterpillar into a butterfly thing that made me change. It, it showed me that I could change. And the words to it, you know, it's like just everything. Yeah, I'm going to link all of the music that you mentioned to a playlist. But yeah, it's a, that line in it of, you know, if you believe you're halfway there, it's also very steps, isn't it? Like step two, like came to believe. And it makes me think, you know, I grew up in a different situation than you. I grew up in a lot of religious homophobia yeah. and, and hid, had to hide a lot. And, you know, the thing with hiding your sexuality, then it's very clever and easy to hide your addiction because you're already like really great at hiding things. And the thing that music gave me was this, lifeline this idea of a future a fantasy future that would be better and it sounds like that was happening for you as well in rehab you know it really was because it was like I, I literally was looking for a spiritual awakening and they kept saying to me oh one day you'll have a spiritual awakening and I really thought like you know a spiritual awakening was like this suddenly like this big burst of light and it wasn't you know that track really was like a spiritual awakening because it suddenly made me, it gave me a purpose to what I was in rehab for. I knew I was there to get clean. I knew I wanted a new way of life. I didn't know how to get one. Mm. I was so feared up. My idea of going to rehab was I was going to get kicked out and I was going to come back to London and say, well, I tried. <laughs> and that was it. I could carry on. You know, and suddenly listening to the words of it, it gave me a realization that life could be beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that's the power of music. That is the power of music. And that reconnection to music really came from that one track. Because, you know, 
they were saying, oh, you can't be a DJ when you leave here. You can't be in that in that world. And I was like, and they kept saying, you can't go back to London and you can't go back to DJing. And it's, I've said this quite a lot. And you can't go back to that relationship. And I, I said at the time, I'm not going back to any of it. I'm going forward. Mm. And I've always gone forward from that moment on. And, you know, suddenly rekindled that connection to music. M- music was no longer a ways and means to get more. Music was no way, no longer just a way to earn money to buy drugs. Music was become the primary drug again. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first went out, I was drawn to that, to the feeling of feeling that music, and I, and to, to get that feeling back was my prime directive. I thought, okay, this is going to be my life. I want that feeling of the first time I ever went out again. It's also changing. There's a mental shift there of, of like you know, all those years where you go out and it's about take, 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 take. And then there's that shift of like going into that environment and being like, what is it that I can do? What is it that I can contribute? And for me, that's a a game shifter. And and people often ask me as a sober person, how do you navigate being sober in your job in other people's social lives? And I always think it's because I'm there to contribute. Well, you know, it's that crossover line between suddenly being a bottom all your life and suddenly then becoming a top. Right? It's about it's a complete <laughs> shift, right? Because as a bottom, as a bottom, we lay there and we take it and we take it and we take it. We're really good at taking it, and then suddenly, you know, you've got this new release of life where you're a top and you're actually right. I'm going to be the best top there fucking is. And, you know, you, you, you suddenly get rhythm and you suddenly get this new lease of life. And that's, that's it, right? That is it. I love it. You know, Tony, I'm interested as well about this thing called intergenerationality. It sounds very like a big word, but really, you know, when we grow up, especially considering the AIDS crisis that you mentioned, you know, we didn't really have like, gay mums and dads to learn from or gay grandparents to learn from. And, you know, you've become, whether you like it or not, or whether you take it or not, there's there's a mentor element to you, certainly for me, in that, you know, yeah. you were a big part of me getting sober, and I'm so grateful for that. You know, I'm more grateful to you for being in my life at that point, because what, what happens is when you sponsor or you work with someone or you get to know someone in early recovery, you learn so many lessons about yourself from that person. And although the sponsor or the, the newcomer thinks that they're learning from you, it's the other way around as well because it's a two-way street. And that's what sponsor sponsees should be, a two-way street. Because as much as you learn from me, I'm learning from you because I see my mistakes within what you do. So I always think that you're blessed when you have that dynamic with anyone. Because it really does show you what life's about and what, where you are at in life. You know, some days I, I would talk to a sponsee on the phone and I'd just go off the phone and I'd just think, fuck, man, like, I really needed that conversation today. And he's probably, probably at the other end of the phone thinking exactly the same, hopefully. You know, because that's how it works. And it makes you walk the walk as well, doesn't it? Because you can't really like... 100%. Like it keeps it fresh for you as well. It's But this thing of, of mentorship, I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned at the start of the chat about sharing your story. I think it's vitally important that you share your story, n- not only, you know, around music. We need to know the history of music, but especially around addiction and, and what can happen and, and how things can turn around because... People talk about COVID and pandemics, but we also have a crisis around drug use within our community. Majorly. And, and the amount of deaths that it causes. Majorly. And, you know, the more outspoken we are and the more of a light, that's the way we, we should be. We, we should be shining the beacons to all of those people in their darkest moments. So for me today, I'm so open about my recovery uh, on every platform that I have because it's not about putting messages in bottles. It's about writing the fucking message in the sky. Because, you know, only one person's going to find that message in a bottle. Fuck that shit. That's great. Don't get me wrong. If one person finds the message, then it's a success. But you know what? There's a bigger picture. And it's about painting that bigger picture so that everyone can see it. So for me, I'm very vocal and I'm very honest about my recovery. Because without it, I would be dead. But also, I would not be in the position I'm in. You know, because I get so many messages daily on my Instagram that I respond to every message. And people go, oh, my God, you must be mad. And I'm like, no, because 
if someone's taken the time to message me about addiction or about a family member, I know how hard it is just to say those words, let alone fucking type them. Yeah. So, you know, for me, every time someone messages me, that is a cry for help. And I, if it wasn't for me having that one cry for help, I would be dead now. And for that one person to listen to me at that right moment, at that God-given moment that changed my life forever. So I have to be that person. I have to put myself in that position. And I think that the more people are honest about their addiction and the more, you know, don't have that internalized shame around where they come from or what they what they've done and relishing the fact of where they are and not where they were is a remarkable thing and i think that we all have a platform and we should use that platform to the best of our ability and share the shitty stuff you know because on social media that's not no let the world know what what bad day you're having let let people know that you know life on life's terms is fucking hard but don't make it harder. Mm. Don't sit with it and not mention it. If you don't open your mouth, you don't get fed. I don't want to blow too much smoke up your butt, but, you know, all of the craftiness and all of the wheeling and dealing and the hiding and the secrets, there's so much fucking work goes into that. You know, there's so it's much exhausting. work. It's exhausting, but there's a big intelligence there and you've kind of flipped it and put it out into the world in a really positive way. I, I'm, it's not my business to be proud of you, but I'm very proud. No, of you. you know what? Thank you, Cormac, because I love you. And, I, you know, you tell me all the time and you're one of these people that's always stayed in touch. And you always, always send me messages, pictures of dogs. And I love that about <laughs> you, Cormac. No, but I do. I love that. You know, oh. you know that's a testament to where you're at in life. When I look at you, I just see Cormac and I see this really like, even though you're wearing yellow today, but there is always this yellow glow about you, around <laughs> you, which is kind of like your oh. recovery and where you're at in life shines through. And I just think it's a really beautiful mm. thing to see. And I'm very proud to have been a part of That's it. so lovely. I'm going to bring us back into the present moment. What is a record that you're playing at the moment that is blowing things up when you're playing it out? I, I There's this track called Follow Me, which is just like, follow me to the to, to the uh, rabbit hole. It's so good. It's, you love a vocal. I do, but it's also it's got the... It's, I it's, love it's, a vocal it's too. such a good kick in it, and it just goes into like verging on techno at points. It's so fucking genius. It's an exquisite house track. It really is. Good. I'm going to add it to the playlist. Tony, I just love talking to you. I could talk to you for ages and I appreciate it so much that you would take the time. Will you tell us a little bit about where they can buy the book, the number one bestseller on Amazon? Tell us about the art exhibition. Tell us about the documentary. My Sunday Times bestselling book. <laughs> no, you know where it's just yeah. come out on paperback and, it, and, you know, it's in every airport. And it's, yes. I'm getting so many people messaging every day about it. and It's it's mad. So, I mean, I'd be for three days doing my new role as Sunday Times travel writer. Amazing. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm doing a whole review of Ibiza this summer. I'm staying in nearly all the hotels I'm done. We're doing the highs and the come downs oh, of Ibiza from the eyes of a DJ. Oh, really? How's the art exhibition going? It's amazing. It ended yet. I want to come see it. It ended two days ago. We're going to move it. Bollocks. It's going to go somewhere else. The whole thing about it was, yet again, about using our platforms to send people to rehab. So the proceeds from the, the style of the art was going to send someone to rehab and we can send a lot of people to rehab. And the thing about it is if we did a play on just recovery because people will say to you, oh, you're still a cunt or you used to be fun. So we did all that big AA books in glass cases with New York, still a cunt written on in gold leaf and all of these things. And we did all this stuff about recovery and what people say to you and about the inner child. So we, did, we built an AA meeting in the middle of the room or an AA meeting, whatever you want to relate it to. And we had all of these sessionally street characters. Because when you're a kid, you get given Winnie the Pooh or these teddy bears to hug to go to bed with. And they become your heroes and they become your crutch. Suddenly you get to three or four and you discover McDonald's and sugar and iPads. Winnie the Pooh's forgotten about. Mm. And that rejection can then lead to a life of wanting to be loved, and which will lead to addiction. So we, yeah. we used Winnie the Pooh and Piglet and all those characters and put them into this meeting because they've all had hard lives. What happens to them when you've rejected them? They go to meet, they all end up in the same place. Oh, so that's why that's we so that's why we built them. And we built these life-size characters of an alcoholic Winnie the Pooh. 
and so and so. Who misses his friend. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a, a massive success. I'm really happy about it. Tony, I love you so much and I hope to see you soon. You will see me soon. Would you give your dog and your mum a wee squeeze? I love your mum as well. She's very cute. Of course I will. You're such, a, you're such a blessing. Thank you. Lots of love. See you later, gorgeous. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Queerly Beloved with me, Cormac. You can find the playlist of all the music featured in today's episode in the episode description. And while you're there, please do hit subscribe so you don't miss out on my conversations with other talented people. A big thank you to Michael Lane, my producer, my manager, Melissa Taylor at Tailored Communication, and of course, to Amazon Music for their support. Take care of yourself. All the best. Bye.